So if you would turn with me in God's word now to First uh, Thessalonians, First Thessalonians chapter two. I'll begin reading at verse 13. This is the word of the Lord. As we hear it, let us let us pay attention to what he is saying to us to prepare us for the message. Verse 13 begins, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you suffered The same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you, brothers For a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you for you are our glory and joy? Therefore. When we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass. And just as you know, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you are always you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before God? I read all that to focus on a few key words that are in the text before us. There's a a word of preparation for those who are going to face suffering There's the promise that it's coming to Paul and Silas and Timothy. And it's not to surprise the saints there at Thessalonica when it comes to them also. And as a result of this preparation, it's actually producing something in the saints at Thessalonica that they didn't anticipate. It's it's producing joy in the Apostle Paul when he sees how they bear up under persecution, how they bear up through their suffering 
And so when we come down to the end of this, this last few verses that we read, Paul is rejoicing because of their suffering. It's it's an amazing irony, isn't it? He's rejoicing because these saints have a a fire-tested faith. They have a faith that endured suffering. And this caused Paul great rejoicing, great comfort, because he saw through their suffering and their perseverance in it that they had a true saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were testifying to it, to the whole world. This testimony encouraged the Apostle Paul. And as I was thinking about this section of Scripture and plenty of other sections of Paul's writings, I began to think, I wonder what the, if, if the, the Bible uh, printers today were going to reformat and change the titles above each section, what would they call these sections today? I don't think they would call them what Paul was actually calling them. Your worst life now. Your trial-driven life. And, and sadly, if it was titled that today, many people would skip right over that section of Scripture because they don't want to hear about that. But Paul uses this section for the good of the saints. And we need to understand that when we read about suffering. It's for our good. He's preparing them in this section for suffering. And he's comforting them with the assurance that it brings that they belong to Jesus. If you'll notice in his preparation, he he talks about his own suffering. and, And in the middle of all this, we see that he's saying, you get ready, it's coming to you too. It will happen to you. But before that and after that, he's rejoicing because they have a true faith. And that faith is finally proved or tested and proven by the way they endured suffering. He's rejoicing over what their suffering is revealing. He's telling us that their suffering, like his own suffering, his own testimony, is testifying that they have a true and saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and they are not ashamed of his name. They are willing to stand through persecution and be faithful to their Savior. The Apostle Peter has much the same testimony. His testimony sounds like the Apostle Paul's testimony and the testimony of the saints at Thessalonica. He suffered much. Peter suffered much for Christ's name. And if you are a Christian, you will suffer if you live godly in this world and honor Christ as Lord. Let's listen to to Peter's testimony of his own suffering real quickly from Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. Verse 27, just to, to hear a glimpse of Peter's own testimony of suffering and what it actually ended up producing in his life for his good and the glory of God. 527. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intended to bring this man's blood upon us. This was not a popular message that Peter was preaching. He was saying that the Jews were responsible for Jesus' death. When you preach the gospel, it is going to be an offense to sinners. Be prepared to suffer as a result. Look at verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand 
as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. He's telling them the bad news in verse 30 and the good news in verse 31. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they didn't repent. Quite the opposite. They were enraged and wanted to kill him. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thaddeus rose up claiming to be to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and, and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. When they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing. Why were they rejoicing? Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Messiah. Their suffering was God-ordained for their good and the proclamation of Christ's name. And nothing could stop them from doing it. Nothing could stop them, not even the fear of death itself could stop these men from proclaiming Christ because he had saved them and put them on earth for a purpose to testify to his excellencies throughout all the earth. So when we see this testimony here and the testimony of Paul and the testimony of the Thessalonians, we can be comforted in knowing that even though we do suffer as Christians, we will suffer as Christians. God has a divine purpose in it, though we may not see it at the moment. Peter had faced suffering for Christ's sake, just like Paul. And as a result, we see joy flow out of him. He's rejoicing over it and continuing on, just like the Apostle Paul did. And the point of this is this, that suffering for Christ's name should not surprise us nor overwhelm us as Christians. This is part of our testimony, our heritage. It testifies that we are united to Jesus. It shouldn't surprise us then. It shouldn't overwhelm us when it comes. But it should cause us to ask questions. It should cause us to ask questions about ourselves. We should ask questions like this. How will we respond when, not if, we are faced with suffering as Christ's witnesses? How will we respond? We need to ask, will we rejoice like Paul, like Peter, like the church at Thessalonica? Or will we, will we compromise? Or will we be sanctified through this suffering and rejoice for being counted worthy of Christ's name? Well, Paul and Peter both in their epistles help us find the answer that we need to have for this question. So if you would look with me back in first Peter chapter one, 
And here we can see that Peter, like Paul, helps prepare us to answer the question about how we should respond when we face suffering for Christ's sake. Verse three, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And he tells us why these trials come in the next verse. They shouldn't surprise us. They shouldn't overwhelm us. They should sanctify us. These trials come, he says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You have, though, though rather, verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I think verse 9 saying the result is that you have joy that's inexpressible as you suffer for Christ's namesake. It's going to confirm the salvation that you've been given by God's grace. That suffering has a purpose. That's important for us to remember. I think here in this passage, what what we see going on is, is God is assuring us through suffering that we belong to him. And he's purifying us in the suffering to make us more fit for him to be his witness and to speak with grace and speak the truth in love to those who are lost for the sake of Christ's name. But when we do, we're going to face all kinds of trials, all kinds of sufferings will come our way. Verse six says we're going to face various trials. That's an interesting phrase that we see there. The word various there means variegated or multifaceted. We're going to we're going to have all kinds of trials that will be used by God to to purify our faith, to assure our hearts that we belong to him. These things will come into our life as a natural result of living in a fallen world. But how we respond to the trials of life will testify that we belong to Christ. Our hope is in God, who is sovereign even over our suffering. You'll face things when he says various trials. You'll face things like a Sunday morning with no heat. That's a trial. It was a trial for your elders anyway to figure out what we're going to do. But how we respond to it. We can respond to the trial of no heat with with complaining and bitterness and anger Or we can say, praise God, we can gather. We can gather with God's people, no matter how cold it may be. They're hungry for the truth. The the multifaceted or various trials that we face can be things like, obviously, persecution for our faith. It could be things, though, as seemingly small as, you know, frustration over your job situation. A loss of a job. Or something even more heartbreaking, the loss of a child. Somebody facing heart disease. Somebody struggling with vision impairment. Somebody facing cancer. Those are various trials. And they are coming into our lives for a divine purpose to make us more like Christ, more reliant upon God. And then to testify to the world that we trust him as our Lord 
And all things that he allows are for our good. When we come to Peter and his testimony and his epistle, he talks a lot about suffering. He endured a lot of suffering, and I think he is qualified in that sense and by the Spirit's inspiration to write about suffering. And he talks about various types of suffering that we will all face like this. And through it all, we'll honor Christ, we'll glorify Christ, and it'll help confirm our faith. But he also talks about a very specific kind of suffering we will face if we are followers of Christ. He refines the thought of various trials to one specific type of trial in chapter 4. And that's really where we're going to spend our time back and forth between this and 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 4, verse 12, down to verse 14. Here, Peter's refining the thought of, of facing suffering for the sake, not so much of just being in a fallen world, but for being followers of Christ in this fallen world. In this passage, I think he's trying to prepare these saints and us as well for the suffering we will face as witnesses for Christ in particular. Look at verse 12. He starts with a very critical word to suffering saints. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are highly privileged because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Here, Peter prepares us by telling us two things that are really critical this morning. Number one, we should anticipate suffering For Christ's sake. Number two, we can celebrate suffering for Christ's sake. First off there in verse 12, Peter tells us that we should anticipate suffering for Christ's sake. He's preparing us to anticipate this suffering. But at the same time, when you read this verse, he's preparing us to to endure suffering and know that it's not for our punishment. He's telling us to remember that our suffering is ordained to test us, not destroy us. It's not God's wrath coming through our suffering as Christians. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. It's a test. It's a a test that, that God has ordained to bring about a certain result that will bring him glory and praise on the last day and do you good here in the present today. I think it's really important that Peter starts this very verse by addressing these suffering saints with the term beloved. That's good to know when you're suffering, that God loves you. It's good to know that when you are suffering and it feels like you are even abandoned by God, that God has not abandoned you in the midst of your suffering. He's with you in it. He goes to the fire with you like the three Hebrew children saw there was one with them who endured the suffering with them. And protected them. I think that Peter addresses them as beloved here to remind them that, that, look, these fiery trials are not punishment. They're disciplinary love from your father. They aren't meant to destroy or condemn you. These fires are meant for the Christian's good to purify you. To burn off the dross of sin that still clings so easily to our flesh. As the song we just sang said, 
the flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. This testing of our faith through suffering is by God's design and it's for our good and his glory. We need to keep that in mind. It's not always to keep it in mind when you're in the midst of suffering. That's why we need Peter and Paul and their testimonies and these scriptures that remind us that we're going to face it. Be prepared in the midst of it, because when it comes, it's going to hurt. But we know that the one who allows it and ordains it and decreed it has done it for our good and for his glory. We need to understand that God uses these trials in our life to, to test us, as we see there. And we think about that. So is he, is he testing me to see if I'm really going to endure to the end? Is, is God putting a test on me because he's just not sure about me and he needs to prove to himself that I belong to him through faith in Christ? That's not at all the case. These tests are for us to confirm that we do belong to Jesus. These tests are to prove our faith in Christ to us, not to God. God has granted us this faith. God has granted a faith that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven by him. He doesn't test us for his good. He tests us for our good. He tests us for the good of our own assurance. He'll keep us in it. He'll sanctify this suffering. The testing of our faith helps reveal and assure us that we are truly Christ's. If you truly live like Christ to honor Christ, Christ isn't just Lord over all things. He's Lord in all things in your life. Then you will go through suffering because the world will see Jesus when they see you, when they hear you. And this suffering will help reveal to you that you do belong to Jesus, that you are assured by God's grace that you're going to represent him as his ambassador on earth. But when you are an ambassador, you shouldn't expect that country that you're in to treat you like you're their king. They're going to treat you like a foreigner. And these tests that come into our lives as Christians, I think, are very remedial. I think they're very helpful They wean us away from loving this world and thinking that this is our final destination. These tests help remind us that we are but pilgrims passing through on a mission. And that mission is to do what Peter says in chapter 2, verse 9, to proclaim the excellencies of Christ to the world. He says in verse 9, Chapter two, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The church is to be the people of God set in this fallen world to point to Jesus. This is our mission. This is why we were saved, why we were called, why we were justified, why we will be glorified. We are to represent Christ on the earth and honor his name. And for that, we will suffer. But it's not in vain. It's purposeful. Since we need to know that the testing of our faithfulness to the command that we even see here in verse nine to proclaim the excellencies of him. That's why we're saved. That very command, that very commission that we have in the Great Commission is what really often will be the, the core issue of why suffering comes to us. 
If you do this, if you honor Christ as Lord, if you are a chosen person, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people set apart for God's own possession to proclaim Christ to the world, to the lost, you're going to face opposition. Persecution is going to come. But in that persecution, we even benefit because in it we are sanctified and conformed more and more to the image of Christ. And not only that, and we need to get this anyway, your sanctification isn't just about you. It's about Jesus in you, magnifying his power and authority, his preeminence through his conforming you to his own image so that you can honor him and also help others. That's what we see happening in the suffering that goes on in the church at Thessalonica. Go back there with me. Chapter Three, the first Thessalonians, Paul points out here that this persecution, the suffering that they were enduring and that the Thessalonians would endure for Christ's name, that affliction that they were feeling because they were now speaking the truth in this area where the, the gospel has been pushed back and pushed back and hindered. That affliction that's coming was doing something sanctifying in their lives. It was sanctifying their lives and it was benefiting others, namely the Apostle Paul, Silas and Timothy. Look what it says in three, six. Now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. We now live, we now live if you are standing fast in the Lord. You have to understand what happened at Thessalonica. Paul and Silas and Timothy were there preaching the truth and they were ran out of the city and left this pilgrim church, this new church, baby church, who took up the mantle and continued to persevere preaching the gospel, knowing that it may cost them the loss of their own homes, their freedom, their lives. And Peter, I mean, Paul rather here is saying, look, this suffering, this testing that's been going on in your lives, it's producing something good in ours. It's testifying to the power of Christ in you and it's comforting us in our afflictions currently. And I think Peter and Paul both want us to understand that when we read their epistles and they talk about suffering for Christ's sake as his witnesses. And let me, let me be clear on this. You can call yourself a Christian. Um, you can hang the title on yourself. But that's not the way it came to the early Christians. They were called Christ-like people. The name was given to them because of the way they lived their lives in that dark and fallen world in which they were called to be witnesses for Christ. Their lives were conformed to the image of Christ progressively and openly and it made an impact on that culture, so much so that even the pagans would call them Christ-like. So we need to understand something. I, when we talk about suffering for Christ as a witness for Christ, it's a whole lot more than just standing on the corner and preaching the gospel. It's not less, but it's more. You have to proclaim it. But those who proclaim it should be magnifying it by the way their lives are conforming to it. 
And when you do magnify the work of Christ through your obedience to him, through the following of his instructions, his commands, you will face persecution because you will stand in opposition to the world around you who does not like those commands, does not like that infringement on their own personal space. They don't want to hear that there's a Lord over them they're accountable to. But when they see you, they hear that. They see you conforming to Christ's image. They see you following his directions. And they are they are intimidated. They are at war with that. They are even enraged by it. And they may attack. This is the testimony of Scripture over and over again in the epistles. But what Peter and I think Paul want us to know, what we need to get into our hearts before we endure suffering for Christ's name, is that God has a good and loving purpose even for that kind of suffering. We can be assured that our suffering, according to the testimonies of their suffering, will not be wasted when it's for Christ's name. God will not waste our suffering. God will use our trials to assure us of our salvation. He does that here for the Thessalonians. He will use our trials to sanctify our affections. Our desires will change through our suffering, through our suffering because of even the things that we have done wrong. When God's discipline comes to us and brings us disciplinary suffering, we turn away from the things of the world and turn back to following God's word. Suffering burns away selfishness. Suffering burns away an attraction to this world because we know we are pilgrims passing through. And suffering just reminds us of that. When you get sick, you recognize very quickly that this is not hopefully going to be your final destination. You do not want to remain in this body, in this world forever. You want to go home to glory So suffering in that sense is sanctifying. It turns our hearts back to God. I was talking with Paul at the hospital on Friday and I told him, I said, you know, the the Puritans used to speak of the sickbed as the place from which they could they could peer straight into heaven. It reminded them of their mortality. It reminded them that this this life is full of suffering and sorrow. But one day that will all cease and we'll be with the one who recreated us. Into Christ's image, magnify him perfectly on that day. But God uses the suffering now for good purposes in our lives. And we need to keep that in mind. He did that there in Thessalonica. He did that here in Peter, in first Peter. And when you read passages like this, they should remind you of some very important truths that we know theologically as Christians. When you face suffering and affliction and persecution for Christ's name, it should remind you that God is still sovereign. Your persecution didn't sneak up on him. He called you for this purpose. God is sovereign over our suffering. He's sovereign and that means sovereign over this. And that means that that basically this our suffering as Christians will never be in vain. It will never be in vain. And you testify to the glory of Christ and are persecuted as a result. You may not see your reward here, but it's coming. You may not see the benefits now, but they will show up in eternity. You need to keep in mind that this, this sovereign God who is sovereign over all things, including suffering, he doesn't allow it to be in vain. And one day that suffering itself that we face right now on earth, one day that suffering will finally cease. 
There's coming a day when we will no longer suffer for Christ's name, but rejoice in his presence, made whole, made perfect. And we know that that day is coming because God, the father, even sent God, the son to face fiery trials on our behalf. He sent Christ to this earth to face fiery trials and do that for a purpose. And that purpose was to assure us that our suffering will one day cease in glory. Our suffering's coming to an end because of Christ. He suffered, and in his suffering, we're assured that our suffering will one day be over. And we will rest in his eternal presence. For he is king and Lord over all things. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to his glory that he is Lord. And in the meantime, we keep this in mind because we will suffer as Christians. And when the day comes that we can rest in his presence, we'll rejoice. But Peter is telling us and Paul is telling us we can rejoice now when we suffer as Christ witnesses. We shouldn't be surprised when we suffer. We should rejoice. It's a hard thing to think about, isn't it? I mean, I don't think of joy as the first thing that comes to my mind when I'm suffering. But there is an abiding joy when you know that you have suffered for honoring Jesus, for bringing glory to his name, whether the people respond or not. But you know that you have pleased the Lord because he has given you this opportunity and his blessing resides on you. And that's what Peter's talking about in chapter four. Again, go back there with me Four twelve B. He tells us you can rejoice. You don't have to be surprised. Don't be shocked. Don't be surprised by these fiery trials as, as though something strange were happening to you. What, what you need to be shocked by is if you're a Christian and you're not suffering for Christ's sake. That should be strange to us. But let's all be honest. It's not really that strange to us. How many of us have suffered this week for the honor of Christ's name? How many of us have said we want to be willing to do that, but when opportunities came, we turned we compromised. We looked for comfort. We didn't consider our pilgrimage here as God's blessing to us, even though we face suffering for standing up for Christ. In verse 12 there of Peter, he is referring obviously specifically to fiery trials related to our witness as followers of Christ. He spends the entire chapter beginning in verse 1 down to verse 11 saying that, look, if you're a follower of Christ, it'll be obvious in your life. You'll be living a holy life. And for that, you stand out in contrast to the world around you, and they are uncomfortable with you. They see you as a threat to their freedom. They see you as a threat to their expression of sin. And they don't like that. They don't want you around them. So don't be surprised when they attack. Listen, saints, don't be surprised when unbelievers act like unbelievers. I mean, when a depraved sinner acts depraved and sinful, don't be shocked, especially when they focus their depravity and their anger that is meant for Christ on you, because you are that faithful to testify to his grace and power and mercy that your life is conformed to his image and your words proclaim his truth. And they feel like attack is the only thing they can do. Until God opens their eyes to see the glory of Christ and irresistibly draws them by his grace to see the beauty of Christ by seeing the depth of their depravity. 
We are the instruments of grace that God has called for to stand in the world to see the truth proclaimed to those people who are lost in their sins and who need to hear and see the work of Christ at work in us to bring glory to Christ on the final day. There in 1 Peter, when he's talking about fiery trials or the trials that we'll face, not being surprised by these things, he's referring back to chapter 1 and verse 7. He says, you know, don't be, don't be surprised by these fiery trials. Um, you guys probably all know about the illustration that Peter uses here. He's using an illustration in verse 7 of chapter 1 of a goldsmith to talk about why God puts us through the fire, why God allows suffering and various trials to come into our lives. He's, he's using an illustration that they would have been familiar with at this time. Basically, here's what's going on in the fiery trial illustration. He's referring to what the goldsmith would do when he refined gold in this smelting process. The smelter would would heat up until the dross or the impurities in the gold, like sin, would rise to the top through the heat process. They would rise to the top little by little, and then they would be skimmed off until all of the dross was finally removed from the gold, and the goldsmith could look into the vat and see his face perfectly reflected In the gold before him. Then he knew that it was made pure. But it took fire and time to burn off that dross, that impurity. And he's saying that's what's going on in your various trials. God is heating it up. He's heating up these things in your life, these trials that you face to burn off what yet remains. Indwelling sin, selfishness, compromise, cowardice. He's using this this suffering to sanctify us so that we can reflect the smelter's face. We can reflect the, the smith's face, God's face, the face of our Savior perfectly one day. And that's what's going on in this purification process. And the suffering is a part of that. And, and Peter's teaching us that this kind of purification should produce something in us, not woe and misery and, and uh, I'm not sure what to do when I face suffering. No, it should celeb- we should celebrate it. It should produce joy in us, knowing that God loves us enough to not leave us like we were, but to make us more like Christ, even if it takes suffering to accomplish that. We should rejoice in that. Paul illustrated that back in 1 Thessalonians 3, 6 to 9. He's saying, look, you're suffering, saints at Thessalonica. Your suffering has done something good. It's confirmed to me that you belong to Jesus. And that gives me great joy in the midst of my suffering. I see that your faith was genuine. I see that your faith is powerful because it's from God. The Spirit was working through the Word to reach their hearts and to reach that community with the Gospel. And I see it. He says, your faith, your hope, your love, it's all obvious. Even though you're being persecuted for it, you persevere in it. He's saying these trials aren't something to, to regret. These trials, these sufferings aren't something to run from. These, these trials are something to celebrate. To rejoice in. We don't celebrate like we're happy they came. We celebrate like we know why they came. God is sovereign. God is good. He doesn't waste the suffering of the saints. He uses it to make us more like his son. Progressively. Over time, thankfully. Peter and Paul both tell us that we can celebrate these trials that come because we honor Christ in our lives. We can celebrate it when we honor Christ and we are persecuted for it. We can celebrate because these trials help reveal to us that our faith in Christ's calling on our life is genuine. 
They reveal to us and testify to us that our our hope in Christ is absolutely secure. Even though suffering comes, we continue on. These trials and these difficulties that come to our life for Christ's sake testify that our love for Christ is real because nothing can diminish our passion for Jesus. Even if we are threatened to be put to death, we still will not bow the knee to Caesar, to those who will oppose him. Our faith, our hope, our love, they're all real. We don't often really know that we have true faith, true hope, true love until we are tested, though. Nobody asks for the test, but it comes by God's design for our good. But how easy for us as American Christians to say we are followers of Christ. We love Jesus because we go to church every Sunday. We're here on Wednesday. We do small groups. We go to singings. We have prayer meetings. But when you stand before a lost person and you proclaim the truth and they begin to attack you, you begin to lose things that are precious to you as a result of your your uncompromising position. You stand for the truth in a world that hates Christ and the truth. Then you're going to know if you have genuine hope in the gospel, genuine love for Jesus, or genuine faith in God's grace. Testing helps prove that. So we should not only anticipate suffering, but we are told here in Peter chapter 4, verse 13, that we can celebrate suffering for Christ's sake. Look at First um, Peter four thirteen and 14 to see that. Here Peter is going to help us prepare to do that, to prepare to, to celebrate suffering because our, our suffering is going to assure us that we are not ashamed of Jesus. He is our Lord, our Master, our Savior. Look at verse 13. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Rejoice. Rejoice when you share Christ's suffering. Okay, the world can't persecute Jesus. He's not here in the flesh at this time. He's reigning from glory through his people, his representatives, his ambassadors, his witnesses, his pilgrims. He's reigning through us. And when we suffer for standing up for Christ, when we stand up for Christ, the world sees Christ in us, hears Christ's voice through us. So he says, rejoice and be glad when your glory is revealed. Be glad because glory is coming and glory is even present when you do this. He's telling us our suffering is testifying to to us to confirm our hearts that we are so closely united to Jesus and salvation that we will reflect his nature. We will proclaim his word. We will stand up for his name no matter what we face as a result. No matter what it may cost us personally, financially, we'll stand for Christ. When that happened back in Thessalonica, it caused Paul to rejoice in the Lord. It caused him to, in turn, then assure those suffering saints that their salvation was real and their suffering was not in vain. God had a divine purpose in it. There in verse 13 of 1 Peter, Peter is also telling us this. He's telling us that our suffering for Christ will never be in vain. And he tells us that we can then and should then rejoice in our sufferings for Christ's namesake. We should rejoice because our sufferings for Jesus, one day, though we don't see it now, we see the hope of it in Christ Jesus. Our reward for suffering will come. 
Our sufferings for Christ will be rewarded when our salvation is fully revealed on the last day. That is our hope as Christians. Our hope is that on the last day we stand before our Savior and bring praise and honor and adoration to him now and forever without shame because his righteousness covers our sins and commissioned us to go into the world and proclaim his name. And we were able to be faithful all by his grace and for his praise. And on the last day, our suffering for his namesake will be rewarded. Saints, this is not our home. Don't expect reward now. The world hates our Savior. Suffering is destined for us who represent our Savior. Don't expect the world to applaud you. Don't expect Facebook to rejoice with you when you speak the truth about things that the world says you can't say. Expect suffering, but don't forget reward is coming. I want my Lord to reward me. I don't want the world to reward me. I want to be faithful to him on that last day. Now, when Peter and when Paul both talk about glory that's coming, glory that is given when you go through suffering for Christ's sake, they're not just talking about future glory. I need you to understand that it is future glory in its scope that he's talking about. When you suffer faithfully on the last day, you'll stand before the Lord Jesus and he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter in. That is future glory. But that's not all they're talking about when they talk about suffering for Jesus' sake and seeing glory. They're not talking about just the future. They're also telling us there's a promise of a foretaste of that glory whenever we suffer for Jesus now, presently. There in 413, Peter uses the word glory. It's interesting, all throughout 1 Peter, Peter is making references back to the Old Testament. Of course, as a Jew, that would be familiar for him and easy for him to do. So he's always making contrasting points between Old Testament types and shadows and the realities that we see in Christ. And he uses that here, I think, in one way. In the word glory, he's, he's picking a very unique word, a very important word here to convey a very, I think, practical and comforting truth. Because we know that in the Old Testament, the word glory was used a lot, right? And when the the Israelites were in the desert, the word glory was used to talk about the way God showed up, the way God presented himself to them. It described the Shekinah glory. That Shekinah glory was seen as the glory cloud that hovered over the tabernacle. The appearance of it in the wilderness did something very specific for the people of God who were wandering, if you will. But when they saw the glory cloud, they knew that they were not lost. The glory cloud that appeared above the the temple there, the tabernacle in the wilderness, assured God's people that he was near. He was near. That's very important to 1 Peter 4.13. Because look what it says. He's not saying that the glory cloud showed up in the sense that it did there physically in the wilderness. But he's saying this. You're going to know the Shekinah glory is near Because his glory is going to rest on you in the midst of your suffering for Christ's sake. Look what verse 14 says. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory, the one who is there in the Shekinah and of God rests upon you. Peter's telling us that God's spirit grants us a high privilege. That word blessed, that's what that means. We are blessed Because we are promised God's very presence when we are insulted for Christ's namesake. Do you get that? The glory of God rests upon you 
as it did on the temple and the tabernacle. It rests upon you, confirming when you suffer for his namesake, for being insulted for his namesake, that God is with you. He's not going to leave you. He's there to comfort you. He's there to assure you. That's your promise. He's telling us here by God's grace, we find God's comforting peace resting on us when we proclaim Christ faithfully to the lost and we suffer for it. God will be near us. And near isn't so much a term of physical location as it is nearness, like intimacy. God is with us. He's blessing this suffering for Christ's sake to bring honor to his name. It's amazing to think about how many times men and women throughout church history have suffered for the name of Christ and went unrewarded for it on this earth. But yet they had comfort in the midst of it because they knew he was with them in it. There's a comforting peace that would compel them to continue on proclaiming. I think about all the men and women and even children in the time of of the Fox's Book of Martyrs. It was written the testimonies of people being tied to the stake, given one more chance to recant and saying, but how can I? This is my savior's name that I'm here to represent, to honor. And they went to the flames willingly honoring and singing praises to Jesus. And how many people? Through those flames, heard the gospel for the first time and were saved. We don't know. One day we will know. But one thing I can tell you, in the midst of all their suffering, you read the testimonies over and over again. There is this, this martyr's grace, if you will, in the midst of their suffering that comes upon them. And there is peace that surpasses all human understanding. And there is this inexpressible joy. This joy that's filled with doxa, with glory. I'm Filled with God's spirit. I'm filled with God's presence. I know he is blessing this. Even though it looks like I'm losing, I have gained everything because I represented Christ. And he is worthy of my life. There's an illustration of what that looked like in the book of Acts. This glory resting, the Shekinah glory of God and his nearness resting upon a man who spoke the truth and suffered greatly and Lost his life for Christ's sake in Acts chapter 6. The testimony of Stephen. I'm not going to read the entire section here, but I do want to read a section from chapter 6 and then from chapter 7. Chapter 6, beginning in verse 8, we read, Stephen, full or empowered with grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, And of the Syrians and of the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. You're beginning to see the glory of the nearness of God resting upon Stephen in the midst of his persecution. You begin to see it more fully realized in chapter 7 when the suffering comes physically to him. In verse 51, 
You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they, they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You have received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, notice this. When they heard these things, they were enraged. Saints, the message that he preached, if you go from chapter 7 all the way up to this point, he's preaching Christ from the Old Testament all the way through. It's good news. It's a warning with bad news at the end that they won't listen because their hearts are dead. But he's saying, look, I'm telling you good news. And what do they do? They're enraged. They're in anger at hearing this because it's tearing down their own kingdom and exalting Christ as Lord over them. So they begin to grind their teeth at him. This is this is a frightening mob of people coming against Stephen, this poor man standing there alone as a witness for Christ. They're grinding their teeth. They're full of anger. They're shaking their hands. But it says he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the doxa, the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And when they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he died. A gospel witness to the end. And he suffered greatly for it. But one man was saved as a result of it. A man that has been instrumental in all of our salvations. The man who wrote 13 letters of the New Testament. It didn't look like Stephen received his reward. But he did. Because the presence of God was near. It's the only place. The only place in the New Testament where Jesus is spoken of as not sitting on the throne reigning from heaven. Here it says when his children are suffering he stood up because they stood up for him he stood up he was near Stephen in the midst of his suffering that's usually when our union with God would be I think most obvious to us is when we stand up for Christ in the midst of what it may cost us the, the suffering that comes as a result we will know that we have a savior who is near us and who wants to work through even our suffering to testify to his grace and sanctify our lives. It's really humbling for me to go through these different epistles and look at them and think about suffering and think about what Paul and Peter both are saying to suffering saints at this time period. Um, it's humbling. It's challenging to think about it because when you consider who they're addressing and what the result of their their uh, testimony of Christ brought about, the, this persecution and how they were willing to abandon everything, it pretty, pretty much puts me in a position of absolute degradation. They were writing to Christians that were living so much like Jesus and honoring him as Lord. They were living like that so much so that they couldn't even contain the hope that lies within them when they knew it would cost them their lives. 
And the world's hatred for Christ was poured upon them. And yet they persevered, even though they would lose everything. You realize that a Jewish convert to Christ at the time that these letters were written, they would have had their family would have had a funeral to celebrate their death and would have never spoken to them again. They would have rejected them fully and totally as dead to them. Yet they followed Christ, even though it cost them that sacrifice. When I think about my own life and my own commitment to Christ in comparison to that, I am humble. I don't give up near enough of my own selfish desires, which makes me examine how much I consider Jesus to be not only Lord over my life, but Lord in my life. So here's a question for me and here's a question for you. Think about this seriously. Do you follow Christ so faithfully that the world would even want to persecute you for his name's sake. Do you follow him that faithfully that they would even want to come against you? I mean, do they even know that you're a Christian? My answer to that question, I wrote down. My answer was probably not. Probably not because I find it really easy in this world to excuse myself from this commission. Oh, I do it partly. I do it on Sunday for, for you. That's That's easy. Um, I do it personally, occasionally. I do it, you know, intentionally from time to time. But is it is it something that is the dominant desire of my life to honor Christ, not just in evangelism, but for encouraging others to to use what I know of the gospel to bring them edification? A lot of times I, I just think I, I, I don't have time right now. This this is more important over here. I don't find myself being persecuted or suffering for Christ A lot of times because I I don't want to to tell people the truth because they might reject it. I mean, who wants to get into a long debate on Facebook again? Right. Do that in a private message, by the way. Nobody likes that. But what's even more frightening for me and for you, I'm sure as well, is that I'm probably not persecuted because uh, I'm more concerned that people might reject me than the gospel. And I don't like to be rejected. I like to be liked. That's why we have that little like button on Facebook. All right, we count our likes. I find it really easy as a Christian in the world we live in and the culture we're placed in um, to compromise when faced with these kinds of possibilities. And here's why. It's sin in me. Indwelling sin. I love my comfort and I fear man more than I love Jesus and fear God. That's the truth. And I would say that's probably a truth that can be echoed in this room. That's why I need the kinds of testimonies that I have in First Peter and in First Thessalonians regarding suffering for Christ's sake. And so I pray that as we go back to First Thessalonians and I get plugged back in, we will begin to see our lives conform more to Christ through this and that we would regard suffering as something not to be surprised by, but something to be rejoiced in. So let's pray that the Lord would do that and help us move past the, the love that we have of ourselves and the fear that we have of man and move us into joyfully anticipating and celebrating suffering for Christ's sake today. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would just help us to embrace suffering. Lord, I pray that, that suffering would come 
not for just any reason, but suffering would come for this specific reason. That when it comes as a result of preaching the gospel, living for Christ, honoring your name, Lord, I pray that we would see it as something that is not to be in vain. One day we'll see the purpose in it. Lord, I thank you for that day, that great reward to see how that you use even our suffering to sanctify us and others and lead the lost to Jesus. Help us to embrace it, rejoice in it, celebrate it. In Jesus' name, amen.